Well, we are in a series as a church, and it is called Jesus, Con or King. And it's a series based on the book of Mark in the Bible. In the Bible, there are four Gospels, they're called. There are four books. The entire Bible is made up of 66 different books, but there are four in particular that really hone in on the life of Jesus when he was walking the earth. The entire book is about him. The entire Bible is about Jesus. But there are four in particular that really hone in on Jesus' time on earth, walking the earth just like you and I do, but living a perfect life in every conceivable way. And one of those books is called Mark. It's the shortest. It's the snappiest. It kind of moves along at a really, really quick pace. And we've been in that over the past four weeks. This morning is week five. And we're looking at this question of Jesus, con or king? Was was Jesus who he said he was? Was he really the king over all the earth? Was he really this promised Messiah? That's a word that people of old, Jews of old, would have come to understand as a promised one who was coming. Was he really that man? Or is he a con? Is he either somebody who came lying himself, or maybe he came as a really good guy, but his followers, particularly his early followers, just turned him into a legend. They took stories of things that sort of happened, and they just made them grand and turned you know, these little situations into something much more than they actually were. What was it? Now, here in Ottawa, we're, we're quite a thinking city, aren't we? We love, uh, we love intellectualism. We love getting into big questions. We love a good debate, all of these things. Uh, sometimes these things aren't necessarily bad, but I think this question of who is Jesus? Is he, is he actually who he said he was, or is he actually somebody who's just been made out to be something much more than he said he was? This is a question that a lot of people in Ottawa, at some stage in their life, will need to answer. Most likely in our culture, at some stage, they'll be forced to make an answer to that question. And you and I both know that many people in our city, and we love this city, we absolutely love uh, being here in Ottawa, but many people have said, no, I just, I just don't believe what the Bible says about him. So we're going through one of the books of the Bible, Mark, we're going to be in it for a long time, and we're looking at this book of the Bible saying, okay, according to Mark, who is Jesus? What did his life look like? And what does that mean for us for life today in Ottawa? Um, I'm going to invite Oni to come back up. She's going to read um, our verses this morning. Again, not very many verses uh, that we're going through this morning, but it's Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 12. Uh, to uh, just the end of 13, just two verses this morning, and they'll come up on the screen. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Great. Thanks, Oni. Okay, let's pray again together. God, I I do thank you again that you are a speaking God, that you have chosen not to stay silent. And God, I pray this morning that each of us, whether we're here this morning and and we kind of grew up in a Christian family and grew up going to church and think we know all the stories and we know about Jesus, whatever it might be, or somebody who's coming in this morning for the very first time knowing nothing about Jesus Christ, no matter what, God, I pray that each of us this morning would leave here knowing more of him and knowing more of the grace that you have shown us through him. God, I do, I, I do pray that really as well for the person here this morning who thinks that, that they've got this sorted out, that they've got all the answers, that they've... God, if that's in anywhere in my heart, God, I pray even this morning for me. God, speak to me and speak through me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever had a, a really embarrassing uh, moment. Um, again, I won't go around and ask you to stand up and share your most embarrassing moment. Although that might be fun, and, uh, fun another time, but we won't do that this morning. I know for me, uh, one of those moments, and I, I hope you'll like this story. It's not one that I like telling, but it's one that you'll probably like hearing. Um, back in the UK a few years ago, the church that Natalia and I were a part of, and uh, the church that is, that is our sending church for this new church in Ottawa, it's called Church of Christ the King. It's in Brighton about an hour south of London. One day the phone rang, and it was the BBC, the British equivalent of the CBC. And they said, look, every year we do, it's called Pentecost Sunday, we do a big broadcast from a church um, on Pentecost Sunday, and we want it to be from your church, a live service going out all across the country. So for us as a church in the UK, that was really exciting. So everybody was ramping up. Joel, a friend of ours that some of you will have met, was getting ready to, to preach that morning. The worship band was getting ready to lead that morning, not just for the room, but in, in many respects for anybody around the nation who is going to be watching this. So the Sunday morning came along. Natalia and I went to church and uh, we walked in and one of the uh, people that were helping guide people to the seats said, said oh, actually, uh, Rich, there, there are a couple seats right up um, at, the, at the very front. Um, would you and Natalia mind sitting there? I thought, oh, well, what a, what a privilege this is to go and sit in the very front. I thought they might be kidding at first, but they said, no, no, they're actually, people haven't really wanted to sit in the very front row because the cameras are right there. Um, but would you, would you guys mind going to sit there? And I thought, yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't mind going at all because this is England's opportunity to see how good I am at worshiping. So of course I will sit in the front row while the cameras come on me and that will, that will be great. So we're sitting there in the front row and there's this, this, this track in front of the front row that this guy's sitting on the stool and he's got a camera for that really nice kind of slow motion shot on this track and there are cameras all around the stage and it was quite the production setup. Loads of extra lighting being brought in, a massive BBC production truck parked in behind the building. It was quite the operation. And there we are and we're halfway through the service. Joel's preaching and I'm sitting there and I think to myself, I have a tickle in my nose. Now, in this moment, I'm also thinking, I have a tickle in my nose. The way to address the tickle in my nose is just to quickly just rub my nose. But I'm seated in the front row of a live broadcast across the nation. Now, this is a one-hour live broadcast. There are 3,600 seconds in an hour. It will take me less than a second to rub my nose. What are the chances that a camera will be on me when I do that? It, it, it Actually, I've worked this out. The chances are 0.00036% chance that the camera will be on me when I take that one second to rub my nose to address the tickle that was in my nose. Well, the funny thing about a... One in 3,600 chance is that that is still a chance. <laughs> so I went and I went to rub my nose and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a red light on the top of a camera. And at that time, I was the youth pastor in the church. And any of you that have ever served with youth know how good they are with technology. So one of them went on, it's called iPlayer. It's this online thing that shows all the BBC broadcasts after the show. He, he, he moved the mouse to press pause at the very second, millisecond, the camera was on me with my hand up beside my nose like this. He screen grabbed it and put it on Facebook. And that was it. It was out. Just like that. And no matter how much I tried to explain that, look, we've all had an itchy nose. My finger didn't go up into my nose or nothing like that. It was just a quick brush 
across the side to address the ticklet. As much as I tried to explain it, it did not matter because people would just say, well, look, the evidence is kind of overwhelming. You can't argue against that evidence. Now, I don't know if you've got a story like that. I don't know if there's something that you've had happen where you just try to explain it and the explanation, even though you might think that you were telling the truth, even though, you know, whatever the embarrassing situation might have been, but as much as you try to explain it, the explanation just falls flat. This morning we're looking in Mark at Jesus going into the wilderness, going into the desert. And for Jews at that time who would have known this story, and the other gospel writers make mention of it as well, actually in a lot more detail in Matthew and in Luke, but the other gospel writers making mention of that, and particularly Matthew that was addressed to the Jewish audience, for the Jews hearing this story about Jesus going into the wilderness, they would have thought of one thing. They would have thought about their ancestors going into the wilderness themselves for 40 years. And when they thought of that, they would have also thought of that time of 40 years as being a fairly embarrassing time. There's one story in particular. It's actually one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It's, 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 it's actually, I mean, it's kind of sad, but the explanation that kind of comes out is sort of funny. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes up a mountain to spend time with God, and he leaves a man named Aaron in charge. And while Moses is up this mountain, the people in the camp, okay, the, the nation of Israel in this camp down, you know, not up the mountain, but down to the base of the mountain, he gathered all around it, They're going, Aaron, where is he? Where is our leader? Where is Moses? We don't know what's going on. We don't know what the future is going to be like. We don't like this. Aaron, we want you to make us a God. Make us a God that we can worship because clearly that God has forgotten us and Moses has abandoned us and we don't know what's going on right now. So make us a God. Now Moses is up in the mountain. He's having this incredibly spiritual time up the mountain with God. But like all spiritual times, super spiritual times, sometimes we feel like they come to an end. Moses has to come back down the mountain. He comes down the mountain and he gets looking around and he says to Aaron, he says, what happened? What's going on here? I was just, I was up, I was up there and I've come down and what, what has happened since I left? And then we read this in Exodus chapter 32, verse 24. Aaron comes up with this excuse. He says this, he says, Well, look, I said to the people, I said, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. That's what he says. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And like my explanation and my little embarrassing story, no matter how much I want to try to explain it away, the explanation just fell short. In this moment as well, Aaron's explanation just falls short. You can just see Moses, like, face-palming, right? Like, are you serious? Is this really what you're telling me has happened? Now, my story was mostly embarrassment and not a huge amount of shame. I just think it's kind of funny. Maybe a little bit of shame in the moment, if I'm honest. But for Aaron and for the nation of that time, when they reflected on their wilderness years, when they reflected on their desert years, there would have been a lot of shame as well. Yes, there would have been embarrassment, but there would have been a lot of shame associated with that time as well. Because the pattern for the nation of Israel was to trust God, God to show his faithfulness, the people to be fired up. This is our God. He is for us. We can go. We can do anything. He's released us out of slavery. He's released us out of bondage. Let's go. Let's trust him. Let's follow him. And then what happens? They stop trusting. They stop following. Their faith 
falls and they start worshiping other gods. And then God in His grace and in His mercy wins them back again. And they say, this is our God again and we love you and we're sorry and we'll never turn our back on you again until we turn our back on you again. And this pattern just continues and continues and continues. Can anybody relate to that a little bit? Does that not sound a little bit like the Christian life? Of knowing these moments of just, God, just your faithfulness is amazing. I know that you're for me. I know you're leading me. Your direction is so clear. And then something happens that you don't expect. A situation comes up in life that really throws you and suddenly forget it. I'm, find me another God. Find me any other God because I'm not worshiping that one. Because I can't trust that one. I've not heard from him. He's not said anything to me. He took a friend of mine maybe away or, or something like that. And I just know that I just can't trust him. This sounds an awful lot like the Christian life. Well, look, what we're looking at this morning of Jesus being in the desert, this should encourage us. This should encourage us. Because the Christian life, and I know not everybody in this room this morning might identify themselves as Christians. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are so welcome here. I want you to know that. I still hope that you really tune in and do ask us any questions that you might have. But let me tell you, even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, If you do give your life to Jesus, there is no guarantee in Scripture, there is no guarantee in this book that everything in your life gets sorted, that everything in your life gets fixed, that there is nothing that you are ever going to want or nothing that you're ever going to need or, or that there will never be any hardship, that there will never be any sickness or illness or anything like that. This book does not give you that guarantee. In fact, in many cases, the very opposite is true. This book talks a lot about the cost of following Jesus. But it also talks about having your everything in Jesus and being able to trust Him, knowing that He is for you. One of the reasons that we can trust Him is because He was faithful in the desert when we have not been, and when those who have gone before us have not been. And that's what I want us to look at together this morning. Those years in the desert had some highs for the nation of Israel, but they sure had some lows as well, including some moments when Israel's lack of faithfulness and lack of trust in God was brazenly put on display. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you know the same could be said for you and for me. So this morning we're looking at when Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 of Mark chapter 1, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now we can get into this mindset that if we're in a wilderness or desert type situation, that there's no way that God will have led us there. That something else must have happened. God must have taken his eye off off our plan or the enemy must have come in somehow. The devil must have come in somehow and kind of took us off on this different trajectory. What we see in Mark chapter 1 is very different than that. Clearly with Jesus, the Spirit immediately, Mark loves that word immediately. He uses it over 40 times in his gospel. There's an urgency. The Spirit immediately, after Jesus was baptized, drove Jesus out into the wilderness. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So point number one that I want to draw our attention to this morning, it's this. Spiritual highs often lead to spiritual lows. 
Most of us that are familiar with baptism, this incredible thing that Jesus has called his followers to do, of going into water, being lowered down into water, and being raised back up, it, it, it's almost like it's like a picture of a grave. It's saying, I've put my faith in Jesus. I believe that I've died with him and that I've been raised to life with him as well. Those of you in the room that have been baptized, I hope you look at your baptism as a spiritual high in your life. That's a high moment. And the baptism of Jesus that we looked at over the past couple weeks, that was a high moment. This booming voice from heaven. God the Father saying, this is my son. Actually saying, you are my son, Jesus. In you I am well pleased. Spiritual high. Big spiritual high. And then Mark says, and immediately the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Spiritual highs often lead to spiritual lows. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're here as a Christian, maybe you're here as a follower of Jesus, and and at some point in your life you've uh, experienced something that I call uh, CCP. It's a very serious thing some of you will have experienced. CCP, it stands for Christian Conference Phenomenon. Now, you go to a Christian conference and the worship band is up at the front and they're huge and they're absolutely amazing and the preacher gets up and he's preaching up a storm and you're there and you're taking notes and then the worship band comes back up and your hands are raised in the air and the lights come on and the fog machine goes and the presence of God is here. This is amazing. But that's the end of the conference on Sunday night and then you drive back home and you go back into the office on Monday morning and you go back into your home on Sunday night or Monday morning or whatever it is and strangely life seems to be the same and the Christian conference has the euphoria has waned a bit and the challenges of day-to-day life are once again in your face. The Bible is very real about life. The Bible is very real about the challenges of life. And I'm not talking about CCP as a guy who's against Christian conferences. Natalia and I uh, took a group of young people to an event called New Day in the UK that had the big band, had the amazing preaching, all of these things, and we were for that event. We still are for that event. That's not my point. My point is simply this, is that the conference is not God's plan for you to feel restored and refreshed and encouraged along. God's plan for you in that is the regular commitment and regular ministry of a local church and a local fellowship around you. And if you, uh, like many in our city, like many in North American culture, bounce from conference to conference, bounce from spiritual high to spiritual high to spiritual high, eventually you will hit a time in your life where you will, you will just realize this, this, this is not enough. This is not sustaining me. But what does sustain you then? I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger for a minute because we're going to come on to that. We will come on to that. So even for Jesus, that spiritual high of his baptism still led to him going into the desert. Mark doesn't go into a lot of detail about what happened when Jesus was in the desert, but Matthew and Luke do. Jesus was tempted by the devil when he was in the desert. We know of three particular temptations that came to Jesus. And Mark skips over some of those details. But what we do know from what Mark says in those two very brief verses, he says this, and Jesus was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Friends, this is what I want to draw you to of these two short verses that Mark is sharing about Jesus in the desert. We can know that in the desert, God the Father had not forgotten Jesus. 
And when you are in the desert, when you are in the wilderness, maybe there's lots of other detail. Matthew and Luke go into lots of other detail. Mark just goes and just wants to hit that right on the head. When you are in the desert, when you are in the wilderness type situation, there might be lots of other stuff going on that can fill pages and pages and pages, but you need to know that your Father in Heaven has not forgotten you and His protection is around you. Somebody in this church has some incredible stories of growing up in New Brunswick and having some very close encounters with some bears. I heard some of these stories this week or heard of some of these stories. Imagine going out into the wilderness in in rural New Brunswick and just being around the wild animals. I grew up in New Brunswick. I would not enjoy that. Okay, I'm not much of a hunter or anything like that. If a bear was chasing me, I would just be like, look, have at it. I'm not going to put up a fight because uh, you will win and I won't. So just make it quick, please, and that will be fine. I would not be good in that situation. Jesus is led into the wilderness. He's around the wild animals. And they don't harm him. His father protects him. What are the wild animals that are rounding around you right now? Is it a colleague? Is it a family member? Is it a work situation? Is it a lack of work situation? What are the animals that are rounding on you right now? Are you thinking, God, you've forgotten me? I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting pounced on here. I'm getting attacked. Know that your father has not forgotten you and that he is protecting you. Number two, for Jesus, the place of uh, the desert, the desert rather, was a place of closeness with God, not abandonment by God. For Jesus, the desert was a place of closeness with God, not abandonment by God. First, we can assume that these desert moments and wilderness type situations are never created by God. If we're in the desert, as I was saying earlier, it must be because of something that we've done. We've let ourselves there, but we need to be open to the reality that it could be that God has led us there. And if he has led us there, he has led us there for our good. His purposes for you are for your good. And that could include leading you into the desert. There's a man that I know that I've been getting to know over the past few months in this city who, uh, when I first met him, told me about a massive desert, a massive wilderness-type time in his life where he lost pretty much everything. And now he looks back on it fondly saying, I see what God was doing in that time. And as hard as it was, I know that he was working all of these things for my good. And I'm better for it now because he's used that for my good. It could be that the desert, the wilderness type situation that you are in right now. Actually, I said it could be. It's not a could. If you're in a desert or wilderness type situation right now, God is working it for your good. When Jesus was in the desert, it was a place of closeness with God for him. Now, we need to recognize that that closeness looked a little bit different. It looked different than the baptism, didn't it? When Jesus was baptized, there's this booming voice from heaven, from the Father. You are my son, and you I am well pleased in the desert. It's no booming voice. It's no booming voice. There's nothing that Jesus, that we know of, that he would have heard with his ears. And there was nobody else around, but that anybody else would have heard with their ears. But still, it was a place of closeness with God. Because with each temptation from the enemy... And we can look at it and go, well, did did God lead Jesus into temptation then? And James, it says that God would never lead us into temptation. Did, Did God break his own word? No. No, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, but the enemy, Satan, tries to lead him into temptation. It's not God doing that. Jesus withstands the temptation. And the enemy comes with three different types of temptation, and Jesus withstands each of them with Scripture. The first one, Satan says this. He says, if you're really the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're really the Son of God, tell these stones 
to become bread. Jesus was fasting. He would have been very hungry. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted before, but you get hungry. Of course you do. Your body's designed to, to need food, to want food. Got an appetite. You're going to feel hungry when you've not eaten for a while. Jesus would have been very hungry, very vulnerable that way. But he fights back by quoting scripture. He quotes something from Deuteronomy way back earlier in the Bible. And he says this in answer to the devil. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the lie? Satan is saying, Jesus, you need bread to survive. And Jesus is saying, I need God and God alone to survive. One, temptation number one. Temptation number two. Satan doesn't give up. He says this, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down from this high place. He takes him up to this high place. Throw yourself down from this high place and God will send his angels to catch you. Satan even quotes scripture to Jesus. Wrap your theology around that one. See, the oldest trick in the book for Satan is to distort God's word. It's what he does in the garden. And did God really say? Did God really say? It's his oldest trick. His oldest trick. To distort the word of God. So Satan even quotes scripture to Jesus and twists it to his own purposes. What's the lie? Satan is saying, look, God said that he would make sure you're fine, but but how can you really know? How can you really know you'll be okay? Well, there's one way you can really know. You can throw yourself down from this high place. Then you'll really know. How many of you have thought in your desert or wilderness type situation? How can Look, I, I read it in his word that God is for me, that he's working all these situations to good. I've, I've heard what Rich said at the front of the room, but how, how can I really know? And the enemy's there saying, well, why don't you test it? Why don't you test it? How does Jesus respond in perfect faithfulness? He clings to scripture. And he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The lie from Satan is how are you really going to know you need to test God? Jesus says, I don't need to test God. I trust him completely. Temptation number three, Satan says, look look out over all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, look out over all of them. Look what they have to offer. Worship me and I will give them to you. What's the lie? They were never Satan's to give. Scripture says that the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it. They were never Satan's to give in the first place. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 says this, five incredible words, then the devil left him. Are you feeling like you're just getting pounded by the enemy? Do you feel like you're just temptation after temptation after temptation? Here's my question to you. What, what are you using to fight back with Jesus clings. And we can get this idea of like, oh, well, he was Jesus. It was, he was the son of God. It, would just, it just would have been super easy for him. No, you know what? He was tempted the same way that you and I are tempted. He clings to the word of God. And Satan eventually gives up. This guy is clinging so hard to God's word that I just cannot get through. There was a story in the news a couple weeks ago about the sailor who fell off the side of a ship I think it was like a massive um, um, kind of cargo ship from the Philippines. And he was at sea, I think it was like two weeks. It was a really long time. And when he was found by a passing ship, he was clinging with everything he had to the one thing that he could find around him that floated. I don't even know what it was, but it floated. And you just imagine, imagine that picture. The guy's like his hands from the water, the salt was like shriveled. His nail, it just, it would have been horrible but his fingers gripping into it. That's what Jesus did in the desert, hanging on to God's word. And then the devil leaves him. 
Three ways to fight. I've already mentioned number one. Cling to God's Word. Cling to Scripture. Go on the offensive. Don't just stand there taking the hits. Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, The the sword is an offensive weapon. You have that available to you. When you feel like you are under attack, don't just kind of turtle. Don't just kind of clam up. Get into the Word of God. God is a speaking God. Get into it and go offensive. Go on the attack. What's the lie that you're believing? I just don't believe that my God is for me. Get into the Word of God and do a bit of a study. Get into verses that are talking to you about God being for you, about you being a son or a daughter of God if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Go on the offensive. Go on the offensive. Don't just stand and take the hits. Go on the offensive. Get into the Word of God. Number two, know the desert as a place of grace. Know that your time in the desert or the wilderness could be by God's design, and He could have led you there. If He has led you there, it is for your good. I want to quote a song that I've listened to a lot over the past few months. It's by Elevation Worship. Some of you would be familiar with them. They're on the east coast of the States. There are not many worship songs that speak about the realities of life, the hard realities of life. Um, Emily's done a great job choosing some songs this morning that do. And this song that we're not going to sing this morning because it's not in that that app that we have, I'm afraid. Um, But it's the lyrics speak to the realities of life. It says this, Thank you for the wilderness where I learned to thirst for your presence. If I'd never known that place, how could I have known that you are better? Thank you for the lonely times when I learned to live in the silence. As the other voices fade, I can hear you calling me, Jesus. And then it says this, Thank you for the scars that I bear. They declare that you are my healer. I love that line. Thank you for the scars that I bear. They declare that you are my healer. How could I have seen your strength if you never showed me my weakness? Oh man, our, our, our city loves putting on this perception of strength. Most of you in this room have lived in Ottawa a lot longer than Natalia and I have. But we recognize that already about this city. If you show any sign of weakness in Ottawa, you can get pounced on, chewed up, and spit out pretty quickly. And it's tragic. It means that we put on this facade that that just shows like, oh no, I've got it all together. The Instagram version of me, that's really me. Look at all the filters. Look at all the bright colors. I really am that person. But you know what? None of us are. Can we just be real for a minute? None of us are. We all walk difficult situations. We all have hardships in our life. But God is a gracious God. He's a loving Heavenly Father. And He knows us better than we know ourselves. And often He will use the desert, He will use the wilderness as our place of healing. By His design as the place where He restores us. If you want to read about this with one particular man in the Old Testament, read about Elijah. I don't have time to go into it right now, but read about Elijah. Read about his time in the wilderness when he had given up all hope. He actually, he actually becomes suicidal. He says, God, take me now. It's better that I'm dead. I wish I had more time. I would go into it. But read how God responds to him in the desert and in the wilderness. It will encourage you. That's one for another day. Life isn't one big Christian conference. It's not one big spiritual high. Life isn't complete perfection, and God never promises that it will be. But He promises that there is a time coming when it will 
be perfect. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Whatever your desert, whatever your wilderness type situation might look like, you, if you are in Christ, you can have hope. Because someday, even if you have to wait for the next life, you might not. Maybe that restoration will come in this lifetime. Maybe it's right around the corner. Maybe it's years down the road. I don't know. But maybe it's an eternity. But I promise you this, if you are in Christ, it is coming. That is a promise from God to you. It is coming. He will wipe away every tear. No more pain. No more death. No more sadness. He is making all things new. This book is a book of restoration. Starts off in perfection. Men and women get it wrong. We declare ourselves as God. And the rest of the book is God's plan to restore it. And he restores it through Jesus Christ. He is a God of restoration. Your desert situation, your wilderness type situation, whatever it is, He will restore what has been taken. He will restore what has been broken. He will work it for your good. And the third way to fight, and this by far, if you've been tuned out for most of this, tune into this, because this is the most important thing by far. Know that when you lack faith in the desert, Jesus is faithful. Know that when you lack faith in the desert, Jesus is faithful. See, if we read about Jesus' victory in the desert and we hear a sermon like this or others speaking about this or taking you through these verses in the Bible and we come to the conclusion, okay, okay, so I just need to do what Jesus did. I just need to go and I just need to get into Scripture and I need to use it and I need to go on the offensive like Rich said and I just need to live my life in this sort of certain way and keep all these rules and I need to live a life of holiness and I need to do all this stuff which might be helpful, it might be good, but if I just do that, then I will fix it. If that's what you take away from this talk, then you've totally missed the point, and you've certainly missed the gospel. The gospel says you will not be perfectly faithful in the desert. You won't, but Jesus was on your behalf. Perfectly faithful in every way. Jesus was perfectly faithful in the desert because he knew that we never could be. That was the human story so far. In the garden, Adam, not faithful. Abraham, later on, not faithful. Moses, later on, not faithful. Keep going. King David, later on, not faithful. I could do this all day long. And then we we haven't even got to the New Testament yet. We haven't even got to you yet. We haven't even gotten to me. Not faithful, not faithful, not faithful, not faithful. But there is one who is perfectly faithful. And his name is Jesus Christ. And when you lack faith in the desert, when you lack faith in the wilderness, God still receives you. He is still for you if you are in Christ because He looks through Jesus' faithfulness and sees you. He doesn't look at you and go, you're just so unfaithful. You're not deserving. He looks through Christ, His Son, His perfect record, and He sees you being covered by His righteousness, by His faithfulness, by His perfection. And He works it for your good. Matthew Henry says this. He says, Christ himself was tempted, not only to teach us that it is no sin to be tempted, but to direct us whither to go for succor. Am I saying that right, Jason? That's a military type word, isn't it? Yeah. And that means something about being defended. 
being defended and being looked after. Thank you. I think we should all just introduce the word succor to our vocabulary in Ottawa this week and see what kind of strange looks that we get. Totally lost my place now. Here we are. Okay, that is no sin to be tempted, but to direct us whether to go for succor, for defense, for help. When we are tempted, even to him that suffered being tempted, that he might experientially sympathize with us when we are tempted. Okay, what's that all about? We worship a God who gets it. That's what this is about. Jesus understands because he has walked it. Jesus understands because he has walked it in our place. We can think, God, why have you abandoned me? Do you know what Jesus yelled on the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was abandoned at that time, in those moments, so that you would never have to be. And even in your desert, even in your wilderness type situation, you can know that God has not abandoned you. I want to close with this quote from uh, George Mueller. He's a man who uh, ran a series of orphanages in Bristol in the United Kingdom. A man that God used in some incredible, incredible ways, but knew some painful wilderness and desert type situations himself that not only would have affected him, but would have affected hundreds and at one time even thousands of orphans that were under his care and the staff that he was leading. He says this, This really struck me. I was looking at this last night. In his autobiography, he has story after story of God's faithfulness and of people bringing provisions to this orphanage to help provide for the orphans. He says this, The father of the fatherless has again shown his care over us. An orphan from Devonshire arrived last night. With her was sent two pounds, five shillings, and six pence. I know it sounds like we're in a Christmas carol right now, okay? But just stick with me. The sister who brought her gave also a silver teapot. So this is, this is a woman who brought this young orphan, this female orphan. The sister who brought her also gave a silver teapot, a sugar basin, and cream jug of the weight of 48 ounces, and then listened to these words, five more words of just, wow, having found true riches in Christ. Having found true riches in Christ. Sent shivers through me as I read that last night. When I look at my life, how do I measure God's favor to me? Is it the house around me? Is it a university degree? Is it my health? Is it friend situation, family situation, all of these different things? This woman had clocked into something much, much greater. She had found true riches in Christ. He is enough. And friend, let me tell you, in your desert situation, in your wilderness situation, Jesus is enough. I just don't feel like he's enough. I just don't feel like God is for me. I just don't feel like he wants good for me. Your, God does not respond to you based on your feelings. And praise God for that. Because <laughs> we would all be in a mess. He is for you. He does love you. He is working it for your good. And his son, Jesus, is enough for you.